really struggles because this is the time the Great Awakening is going on. And Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield are preaching. And by then, even the, the faculty of the school had kind of grown cold and hard. And they had, the, they had the Orthodox Christianity, but there wasn't much spiritual life there. And so the Great Awakening comes through. The students get fired up. And they, they see zeal, they see fire, they see light, and they, they're not hearing that from their professors. And they get really frustrated. And David once makes his comment, and he, he refers to the one professor, he said, that guy has no more grace in his heart than this chair does over here. Well, that gets him expelled from college. And in that day, that's a... You know, but you can see the passion that's in his heart because, he, you know, because the guy probably did have no more grace in his heart than that chair did. But there's a passion in his heart for that, and he later repents of that. And he writes a letter to Yale, and they're willing to take him back, but things don't work out for that. But the, the challenge of this is that at that point in time, if you wanted to be a pastor, you had to have come through one of these big colleges. And so now his hope to be a pastor is gone because he can't, he can't finish his studies at Yale. At the same time, he's about 24, and this is when he first gets hit with tuberculosis. And uh, he had missed several... Uh, he, he, you read his diaries, he's often talking about coughing up blood. And I don't want to be unnecessarily unpleasant today, but this is, this is the reality that these people lived with in that day. Tuberculosis is a painful, they said it was a hard graveyard cough with blood, fever, chills, weakness, and sweats. The disease wasted the body and left victims with pale skin and melancholy spirits. It's no wonder it was called the white plague. And eventually, after a long degenerative wasting, the victim's fever spiked and would literally choke to death on his own blood. This is, the pro- this is what David had. To- Once you knew you had this, you knew you were probably going to die from it. So you have you know, four weeks, four months, four years, whatever you don't, how, much, how much time you have. You know you- this is what your death sentence is, and however long you've got, that's what you've got. And this would kind of co- ebb and flow in his life, and it would come and it would go. But this is what he dealt with throughout his four or five years of being a missionary. But in God's mercy, God took him out of Yale through that uh, inappropriate comment that he made. And just like Moses, God sent Moses to the wilderness, and he got some good training there outside of the land of Egypt. This is what happens to David, because David, after he's kicked out of Yale, he, gets sent, he goes and stays with a pastor named Jedediah Morris, and he finishes his schooling in the house of this pastor, where he can really get some really good, solid training, uh, and, not, and then not in the academic setting, but in the pastoral heart sort of a setting. And so God removes him from Yale, sticks him in with his pastor's home, and he finishes a schooling there. Then he answers a call to be a missionary to the native Indians here in America. The Scottish mission board sends him to do that. And he really debates whether, whether he wants to do this, but he knows what kind of sacrifices it's going to make because we can have romanticized views, last of the weekends kind of movies. We can even that's romanticized to a degree because of how really hard it was to live on the frontier. And so he does that. He spends uh, his first year up near Albany, New York, as a missionary there with the Mohican Indians. And um, again, living by himself and just not having much encouragement. Um, David is one who, and, and this is another reason I think it's so good to, to study the people of the past. Because, you know, we look at fellow church members and they may share some struggles. But they wouldn't share struggles. We're not going to share struggles with each, other, with each other the way we might put our struggles down in a journal or a diary where we just bear our souls because it's just that piece of paper is going to see what's really going on inside. And often when you study people from the past, you get their journals, you get their diaries. You get to see what's really going on in their hearts. And you get to see, oh, that guy's my spiritual hero, but look what he dealt with. He dealt with the same frustrations and discouragements that I often deal with. And that's why I really encourage you to find access to some of these older books because you get to see 
what did these Christians, what was really going on on the inside? You know, they preached their sermons. They, uh, they, they, they led the people to the Lord. They did these great and mighty deeds. But what's going on in their hearts? And, and we, we see this in David's journals. Um, so he spends about a year up there in, near Albany. And then it, it, it's not going well. And he's discouraged. And he says, if things don't improve in a year, I feel like I'm just wasting, wasting the mission's funds. And I'm just going to resign after a year if things don't get any better. If I don't see any more results. At that time, he moved down to southern New Jersey, and uh, he, well, actually, he moved near eastern Pennsylvania for about a year, and again, just a year of apparently fruitful, fruitlessness. Uh, there are other white settlers in the area, you know, the typical, you know, the, the white people bring the, uh, bring the alcohol and the liquor to the Indians, get the Indians drunk, and the whole frustration that David dealt with there, because, and, or you had nominal Christians who were being a Neville, you know, Christians in name only sort of a thing who are being a negative influence on them. And he's trying to be a faithful uh, missionary there. And it doesn't go well. He moves down to southern New Jersey. There in 1745, he sees a supernatural moving of God among the Indians. And, and by 1746, over 150 people are regularly attending. And so he has this great influx of conversions among the Indians, and that gives him encouragement. And he could stay there, but he begins to make these forays, these trips up into central Pennsylvania, up near Sunbury, and um, as far as that area. And this is where his health really starts to fail. The last year or so of his life, he's just grinding through. He, he just wants to serve God with every ounce of, of life that he has left. And he, he continues to just drive his body into the ground as he does this. He only stops when he's forced to by exhaustion. So where are we at? Five, go to slide six. Where are we? Where's that? Okay, so this is a map. It's called the Endless Mountains, and it really was, and it's still called that today, I believe, and that was from 1749, this map. Um, down here, the little blue circle is York, and blue above that is Harrisburg, and this is where David is most up along the Susquehanna, up to Sunbury, where you can see the, the forks of the Susquehanna there. That's where David will spend what I'm going to be talking about these next few minutes. This is where David is spending his life. He comes through Lancaster area and up through Marietta on this trip, so he comes really close to where we are. Um, go to the next slide there, uh, slide seven. This is right up here where 11 and 15 cross above Harrisburg. The Juniata River comes in. There's an island now. It's the state game lands. It was called, it's called Haldeman Island. And David there, the Indians were living there on that island at the time. And, and David says, uh, he's, he's just troubled in his soul. He says the Indians are making all the, and this is his words. And, and again, please read this with the way they would have used the words then and not how we might use them today. Uh, as he's trying to describe the, the horrors that he's described, making all the wild, ridiculous, and distracted motions imaginable, sometimes singing, sometimes howling, sometimes extending their hands to the utmost stretch, sometimes sitting flat on the earth, then bowing their faces to the ground, wringing their sides as if in pain and anguish, twisting their faces, turning up their eyes, grunting and puffing. And you can turn, uh, yeah, and then he finishes that statement with this, their monstrous actions tended to excite ideas of horror and seemed suited to raise the devil if he could be raised in such a way. So this is just, you know, 30, 40 miles up the road from us. This is like David Brainerd in the 1740s. You know, it's, we go there to hunt today. And this is close to home, a, a well-known Christian who is struggling and grieved in his heart in the midst of his final years of life, final months of life, as he's trying to reach the, the Indians for Christ. Finally, in July of 1747, he gets so sick he knows he can't continue. He moves up and go to slide eight. He moves back up to uh, Massachusetts, and he actually moves in with, the, with Jonathan Edwards. And again, this is a providential thing, because what Jonathan Edwards does is he gets to know David. 
and Jonathan Edwards will eventually publish David's diaries and journals, and they will launch, and they will, they will take on a life of their own as they affect several generations of Christians up to the present day. He's gradually dying there. He's attended by uh, Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Jerusha. She's 18, he's 29. They don't marry, but it's pretty obvious that they have feelings for each other. Uh, David says, five days before he dies, he says, I'm quite willing to part with you, though if I thought I should not see you and be happy with you in another world, I couldn't bear to part with you, but we shall spend a happy eternity together. Jerusha died four months later because she got tuberculosis caring for David, and they're buried next to each other there in Massachusetts. His grave is flat on the ground and hers is next to it. So that's David's life. I just want to read a couple clips from his journals, clips from my modern technology here, uh, a couple excerpts from his journals. And so you can see that he's struggling not just with the physical affliction, but the, the turmoil of his soul. Um, during that time with he was staying with Jedediah Mills, the pastor, he said, oh, if I ever get to heaven, it will be because God wills it and nothing else. For I never did anything of myself but get away from God. Eight days later, he wrote, I feel very heartless and dull. And though I long for the presence of God and seem constantly to reach toward God and desires, yet I cannot feel that divine and heavenly sweetness that I used to enjoy. No poor creature stands in need of divine grace more than I do and not abuse it more than I have done, and I still do. He'll go on on his 24th birthday and say, I want to wear out my life in his service and for his glory. So here's someone with a desire to serve God with every ounce of strength that he's got. But then it's a back and forth. He really struggles with depression, we believe, and a lot of other things. Um, October of 1742, he says, It seemed to me that I deserved to be driven out of the place than to have anybody treat me with kindness or come to hear me preach. Oh, what dust and ashes I am to think of preaching the gospel, gospel to others. In the evening, I went to the meeting house, and it looked like it would be easier for someone to rise out of the grave and preach as for me to do that. But God offered me some life and power, both in prayer and sermon, and I was pleased to lift me up and show me that he could enable me to preach. And although I've not been a pastor, I have preached and I have stood up here and taught. And, you know, there are times when your heart is dry and it's dull and it feels dead inside, and yet it's your job to stand up and say something. And you feel so hypocritical because you feel the, the depth of your sin. And I, I, I know having talked to other pastors, it's, that's, that's not uncommon, it's not an uncommon feeling. So never think that because a man's up here talking that he's, his heart is all where he wants it to be. And we see that in David's life here. Um, there are days, certainly, when, when God, you feel God's presence as you speak or as you minister or these other things. But never feel that a pastor, a leader, church leader, doesn't struggle with, with these, these groanings inside. And we see that with, with David. Um, so you, you can go on. His journal is full of these, these, these things. But I just want you to get the sense that... Uh, the, the road, as John Piper will say, the road to, to, to glory, the road to eternity, is not, it's not a straight line to heaven. I can hear him in my mind talking about how the road to heaven is, is a, if you ever hike in the mountains, you don't go straight up. It's too steep. How do you get there? It's, a, it's you do this, right? You zigzag up the mountain. It's a switchback and a switchback and a switchback to go up. And the Christian life is sometimes going backwards to go forwards. And, and David exhibits that. And so I don't want to belabor this anymore. I think that's a flavor for David's life. But you can go to the next slide, and I want you to, to see that throughout, throughout history, men like William Carey and, and Jim Elliott and uh, Robert Murray McShane, you may have read his Bible reading plan, um, Henry Martin becomes a missionary to China, and then to, or, uh, to India, and then to Iran. He dies at 31 as well. Every single one of these men, I have the quotes but not the time to read them, talk about reading Brainerd and the influence that has on launching their careers 
or encouraging them. Uh, Robert Murray McShane says, Oh, to have Brainerd's heart for perfect holiness, to be holy as God is holy. Um, uh, Jim Elliott says, I see the value of Christian biography tonight as I've been reading Brainerd's diary. Enjoyed much sweetness. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, Elliot says, I'm, he said he wants to receive the apostles' passion caught from himself, Lord Jesus. David Brainerd's diary stirs me on to such prayer. And again, so just again, our, our overall theme is winter Christians, Christians who struggle, Christians for whom life is not easy, um, Christians who experience loneliness, who experience uh, a, a strong disconnect between who they want to be and who they are. Uh, between wanting to achieve things for God and yet their hearts feel so dead and so dull inside. And so I want us to find encouragement. So go to slide 10 now. We'll jump forward a little bit, a little bit in time to the life of William Cooper. Again, it doesn't look like Cooper, but that's how it's pronounced. All the experts tell me. Um, I guess if you don't want to have the name Cal in your name, you just say, I'm um, pronounced my name Cooper. It's not Cowper. Um, but Cooper, we, he comes to us, we, we know him primarily through the hymns that he's written. He wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He wrote the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, His Wonders to Perform. And he wrote some other really heavy, he, his life was not always hard, but it was, it, it was seasons of hardness. Um, he is the, the one that most Christians will point to for someone who struggles with deep mental discouragement, depression, multiple attempts at suicide, times in an insane asylum. And uh, just back and forth, seeking to find hope and rest in God, and sometimes having it, and other times feeling in complete despair. So a little bit of his life. He, uh, you can go to slide 11 now. Um, this is one of his hymns that's been recently put to some modern music, and I've heard, I have a recording I have. He says, I hear, but I seem to hear in vain, insensible as steel. If anything is felt, it's only pain to find I cannot feel. He says, your saints are comforted, I know, and I, they love your house of prayer, but I go where others go, but I find no comfort there. And this is only two lines from uh, one of his, this hymn, these hymns that he wrote. But if you've ever felt that way, you're, you're not alone to, to feel alone in a crowd, alone when the gospel is supposed to just, you know, we get this idea the gospel is just supposed to hit us and then life's supposed to be like every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. But it's not always for, for all believers. And so I want you to get familiar with, with someone like Cooper. His early life, he, was, he and his brother John were the only two of seven in their family to survive infancy. His mother died in childbirth, giving birth to John when, when William was six. Uh, Fifty years later, someone gave him a picture of his mother, and he wrote a poem called On the Receipt of My Mother's Picture. Uh, writing was the one thing that seemed to give him any kind of focus and uh, stability in life. He floated around from school to school, um, and he, he was very gifted in, in ac academics and in languages. He became a scholar in, in Latin. He did a lot of translations from Latin into English. But the, the thing that really set him off, and um, again, this is, read people, when you read history, read people in their context. Don't read them by the standards of today. Um, he falls in love with his cousin named Theodora. Now, that's not uncommon that day. I look at my family tree, and I do have, we, we joke about this, but, you know, eight, nine generations back, it was not that uncommon for cousins to marry each other. But this, in her father's mind, was not acceptable, and he would not allow it to go forward. And this just, it snapped William's mind. Um, it was his first severe attack of melancholy, or what we would call depression and mental illness. And it just, it, it launched a, a lifetime of, this is, he's in his 30s by now, it launched a lifetime of this discouragement. And, and institutionalizing and, and suicide attempts. 
1763, he's offered a clerkship to work for the House of Lords, but he breaks under the strain of the exams and he can't continue. 1773, he has a dream. He believes that God has damned him and that God wants him to sacrifice his own life as an offering, um, which he does not accomplish, but it, it just shows you the, the depths and the extents to which he struggles and, and, and the, the trials in his life. Um, later on, he becomes friends with a family named Unwin. Their last name is Unwin, and he moves in with them, and he, they, they kind of help get him some stability in life. However, the, the husband dies, but by that time, he's come very, become very deeply attached to Mary. And although they never marry, he doesn't marry Mary, she becomes a very close companion and caretaker. And they, they live together, but we don't sense that there's any sense of impropriety. You think you can probably think of a larger home at this time. So it's not any kind of inappropriate relationship, more of a mother-child or a patient and caregiver kind of relationship. And so Mary becomes this dear friend to him, and, and they live, and they move together uh, throughout life. And they, he moves, in God's providence, he moves to a town called Olney, which is where John Newton's a pastor. And John Newton is, becomes a dear friend, a, 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 a dear uh, comforter. And you can go to slide 12 for the picture of Newton here. Um, I, I'm grieved by the fact, if you know John Newton, you know he was a really hard, he was a sailor. He went to sea. He was a slave trading slip ship owner. He spent time as a slave captured and put in slave himself in Africa for a while. He's really rough and rugged, and it really frustrates me that this is the only picture we have of him. So I thought, I'll get creative, right? I'll use some AI to age regression. regression. Well, go to the next slide. AI doesn't. AI was not, AI was not my friend. Um, unfortunately, we just need somebody else, maybe a human who can age regress, regress John, John Newton for us. We can go to the next slide so we don't look at that. Um, but what Newton does for, for, for uh, Cooper is he knows to keep Cooper sane, he's got to give him something to work on. And he said, Cooper, he said, let's write a hymn book together. Let's write a hymn book together. And he does this. And, and sadly, Cooper's mind doesn't stay stable enough to do much. But he gets, I don't know, 10 or 15 hymns written. And as, it's as a result of that that we have these hymns by Cooper that, that Newton preserved for us. And uh, there's a little C up there where it says light shining out of darkness. And, and Newton at the beginning of the book says every hymn that my friend Cooper wrote, I put a little C next to there. He said the rest, you know, all the rest, anything else that's a disaster, you know, you, you can blame on me. Um, but all the, the hymns, if this is one of the original editions, if you see the C there, that was written by William Cooper. And so we get hymns like there's a fountain filled with blood in this hymnal and God moves in a mysterious way. And when you, when you read, and when you know Cooper's life, and you, say, and you read things like, um, where's, where's my, when, when God plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm, um, or when he says, you fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Or he says, don't judge the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. It, it means more when you sing a song like that when you know who wrote it. And I would encourage you, if, if you have these struggles, to become more familiar with the life of Cooper. In 1796, Mary dies, and he never recovers his mind or his faculties. And for the next four years, he just kind of lives, you know, uh, just drifts and, and never really has that stability. But I want you to see in the next slide there that not every life, uh, this is one we don't sing much. It's a wonderful hymn. 
but it's one that Cooper wrote in one of his more sane and, and focused and assured moments, that sometimes when a Christian starts to sing, the Lord surprises him with light. And I found this. Sometimes if you're just having a dark time, just sit in the car, go somewhere, and just sing. And, and there's a power in music. Not even listening to it, but as you sing yourself, it seems like God has power to, to send his spirit, to, to give life and, light and encouragement. And, you know, look that up again. I don't really want to go into much more time with that right now. But, and so it wasn't all dupe, doom and gloom and discouragement. And uh, the next slide, 15. I what that is. Okay. So I want to move on now to the life of Charlotte Elliott. She's one who, again, will struggle with a lot of physical challenges and struggles and disabilities. Um, and she's known primarily for one song that she wrote, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But she grows up and born in 1789. Again, I, these pictures aren't the most flattering, but they're the, mo- that they're the only pictures we have of these people. So um, she, uh, she has very active evangelical parents, and um, she's English. She lives in England her whole life. But her, her sister says that she was more or less born an invalid from youth. We don't exactly know what the problem was. She's highly gifted in arts and music, however. Um, but for most of her life, she knows suffering and, and challenges. Winters are long. You can imagine a winter in London, you know, tended to be rainy, especially as the Industrial Revolution comes on and you add in the smog and the coal smoke and everything else. Very gloomy if you're trapped indoors all winter. But this is what, she, this is what most of her life was. However... Um, because of her artistic and musical ability, uh, 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 writing ability, she got to, and her, her parents were somewhat well-known people in spite of the fact of being also true Christians. And so she got to rub shoulders with some really well-known, that we don't know exactly, but some well-known writers and authors of the day. And this was one of the few lights and encouragements she had was being exposed to and getting to know some, some well-known writers. But her sister said, you know, this was not for the best because many of these writers were not good influences. They weren't Christians. They weren't believers. And, um, and so her sister says, in God's mercy, she actually writes this, in, in God's mercy, and when, when Charlotte turned about 30, her health really started to take a downturn. And her sister believed that that failing of her health re- prevented her from more of that socializing with, with unbelievers and people who could have been a really bad influence on her life. At the age of 30, after several months, she spent several months in seclusion and depression, alone in poor health, but lots of time to think, which are always a challenging combination. To have a lot of time to think and not much ability to do anything about it. She starts to feel her sin, and she starts to feel eventually like someone like her could never be saved. And she's really weary and discouraged. And go to the next slide there, number 17. God, in his mercy, uh, sends... A visitor to her home, his name is Cesar Milan. He's a pastor in Geneva, Switzerland, a solidly uh, true believer in, in the, the true salvation. And he helps her to get the gospel. This is stuff that her parents would have told her, but it just was not coming through. But God sometimes uses different tools to bring the same message. And in his mercy, at the age of 33, she, she meets him. And at first, he tries to encourage her with the truth, and she doesn't want to hear it because it's just more discouraging. But he keeps with her, and she eventually apologizes for the way she brushed him off. And May 9th of 1822, uh, she comes to salvation, and she and Cesar Milan will, will correspond for the next 40 years. They will always write to each other on May 9th as a reminder of what he had done for her as an encouragement. 
and it lifts her spirits. And for the rest of her life, it's going to be mostly seasons of encouragement, but her physical health will, will discourage her as well. So the, the key point, what we know her for, is in 1834, her, her brother's a pastor. She's living with her brother. She doesn't marry. She's living with her brother and family. And they're having a, a, a fundraiser at their church. They're going to have, I don't know, whatever they're going to sell the next day. And she's very discouraged because she can't do anything. She can't contribute. She wants to, but she's basically chair-bound, and she can't do much. And then she's just in her room contemplating discouraged. And she says, well, what, what good am I? What can I do? And this, these thoughts of her f- physical challenges begin to make her think about her spiritual life. And she says, is, is everything just imaginary? Am I even a Christian? Is this, is this even real in my life? And she reaches this really, really low point as she's sitting in her room. And then suddenly God's spirit gives her some encouragement. And she says, you know what? I need to act on what I know and not on what I feel. I need to trust what I know and not what I feel. And so she says, she said, I'm going to write down. And she expresses her thoughts. And you can go to the next slide here. And she writes the hymn that we know just as I am. Now, sadly, I grew up in a a church tradition with many altar calls and singing just as I am. And that song got abused and abused. And I'm sad to say we, we were at evening service one time years ago. It's a church I went to school, Christian school at, and we had sung, I think all the verses and nobody had walked forward yet. And the pastor's like, let's just hum it one more time. And, and sadly, this was my experience of this, this hymn. And this is not at all why this hymn was written. This hymn was written almost as an act of defiance against Satan's temptations by a believer, not by an unbeliever. And she's going to declare what she knows to be the truth. And I'll just read a few of these lines here. Sorry that I have to turn backwards, but we'll, we'll work with it. Um, she's acting, she's, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to put my, my, my trust and my faith in, not in what I feel, but in what I know to be true, just as I am without one plea, except your blood was shed for me. And that you, and you bid me come to me, so I will come, O Lamb of God. And then jumping down, uh, she says, Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within and without, O Lamb of God, I come. And then she says, I come poor, wretched, and blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, everything I need in thee I find. Um, and then... Uh, the last one says, just as I am of that free love, the breadth, length, depth, and height to prove, here for a season and then above, O Lamb of God, I come. So if you ever have a chance to sit down and read that, this is an act of defiant faith, not defiance against God, but defiance against temptation, defiance against discouragement. She says, I'm going to trust what I know to be true, even though my heart's telling me everything else, my feelings are telling me one thing, but I am going to put my faith on what the scripture teaches and what I believe. And that's why she writes this hymn. And her sister-in-law comes in and says, hey, this is how things are going next door. And she said, what you been working on? She says, oh, can I have a copy? And well, her sister takes it, and she gets it printed and spread throughout all England. And Charlotte, sometime later, she's up and uh, visiting somewhere, and somebody's like, oh, can I read this hymn to you? And it's like, where'd that come from? She's like, oh, that's my hymn. How did this, how did this make it up here? But God, God wanted that, mess, that hymn to be spread, and, and that hymn is spread. Uh, she spends the rest of her life writing poetry, But because she has these challenges, because she has this heart, she has a heart for people with similar challenges. And she actually puts together what she calls the Invalid's Hymn Book. And it's a book of hymns put together specifically for people who are going through trials. And she writes a hymn based on someone who's just lost a child. 
She writes a hymn for someone who's deaf and can't hear the sermon anymore. She, she's got a heart for people in specific needs and specific trials. And she puts these together, and she becomes the editor of this hymn book. And that's what she's able to do with, with the abilities she has for the rest of her life. And in spite of her poor health, she lives to be almost 82 years old. And his, his, his brother, her brother will later reflect on her life and will say that, you know, I preached a lot of sermons and I did a lot of ministry, but I think my sister's hymn, you know, God will use that for more than, more than anything I ever did as a pastor. And so whatever little talent you have, whatever little ability you have, even if it's in the midst of discouragement, even if it's in the midst of, you know, am I really even a Christian kind of a thing, use what you have. God's given you a certain toolbox in life. We each have a different toolbox. Use whatever tools are in there, even if it's just a putty knife or if it's a Swiss Army knife. If there's only one tool in your toolbox, use that tool that you've got. And you have no idea how God will bless. And we can look at Charlotte's life and we can say, well, we can see what God's done with that hymn. However, we don't always know what God's doing with your little tool. And that, the rest of us, we may have to make, wait to eternity to find out how God's been using the few tools he's given us. And if God's given you a few tools, use your few tools. If he's given you much, he's, he will require much, but use your tools. Um, so this is, this is her, her life. And um, just want us to know, again, thinking back on this theme of winter Christians, Christians who either through a lifetime or through seasons really struggle with this. And this is, a, this, is you know, the, this modern health, wealth, prosperity, the whole TV preacher stuff is a mockery. It's, it's, it's disgusting when you realize that these are, the true, these are the true Christians. Everything else is fake. These are the ones whose faith, even when they doubt their own faith, they're the ones whose faith is the kind that perseveres and prevails throughout eternity, while those who have you know, big followers on YouTube or whatever the case may be, they're going to be gone. They'll be forgotten. Thankfully, not by God's judgment, but they'll be forgotten. Um, so I want to... In the minutes we have left, visit one more person. We'll come into the 20th century, slide 19, to a lady named Margaret Clarkson. We've sung her hymns here several times of Father, You Are Sovereign. We've sung that. It's, it's one, of, one that I had not grown up singing, but I dearly love that we, when we sing that here. And she will write many hymns throughout her life. And she said that if she had to be asked what her favorite hymn was, she would have trouble identifying her favorite hymn. But she said she put this in the top five or six of the ones she wrote. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. And again, many of these great writings and these hymns, these poems, these testimonies come through deep valleys and deep darkness. Um, when Rutherford said humility is a strange flower, it grows best in the winter, we see this borne out. Uh, we see this in the lives of people who, who go through these deep trials, and, and God brings them through the other side. And sometimes in the midst of those trials, they're not always what we would hope they would be, and they're not what they would hope they would be. But on the other side of the trial, they have a way to speak to us that they could not have spoken to us. You know, if Paul had been, uh, you know, saved right out of his Jewish uh, proselytization, his vindictiveness against Christians, if Paul had just done that and then gone on to be a preacher and not known trial, we wouldn't, his, his, his sermons or his, um, the New Testament wouldn't have felt the same. The New Testament wouldn't have been the same if Paul hadn't been beaten and chased out of town and had whatever that physical affliction was, that we don't know what it was, the thorn in the flesh, whatever it may have been. Paul would not have been humbled like that. I love 2 Corinthians. People say, oh, Paul is this macho Christian, this tough guy, you know, he's, he's, he's fearless. 2 Corinthians, you read 2 Corinthians, you know Paul is not. 
Paul might, 2 Corinthians might be Paul's winter epistle. When you see the tears and the, the afflictions. When he, when he goes and he and says, I go to Troas. I'm supposed to meet Titus there. I sent Titus over to, to, to Corinth to see what was going on. And, and I was supposed to meet up with, with Titus and Troas. And he's not there. And there was a big door open to preach the gospel. Here's Paul with a great opportunity to preach the gospel. And yet he can't find Troas. And his heart is so troubled he can't preach. And he's got to go find, got to go find, go find Titus. And so if you want an ex- a clear example of Paul's winter season of life, which I think will show up in a lot of his epistles, but especially in 2 Corinthians, you see that, um, where he says we were pressed almost to despair. We were oppressed beyond measure. God pushed us into a corner. We felt like death was the only way out. But God did that. So back to Margaret here. Again, uh, she's born in 1915 in Saskatchewan, Canada. She moves to Toronto and her parents when she's four. And she reports that she was born into a loveless and unhappy marriage. Her parents divorced when she was 12. Her mother said, now, now Margaret's another one who struggles with severe physical challenges throughout her life. Um, her mother said her first words were, my head hurts. At the age of three, she's bedbound with juvenile arthritis. She actually gets a bald spot in the back of her head from being in bed for so long with this juvenile arthritis. Her childhood was, was full of tension and fear. She was insecure. She felt isolated and disconnected from others, partly due to her physical struggles, but also partly due, I think, to her disposition and personality. But the one thing that was a blessing to her was that when they were in Toronto, they were brought to a church that was solidly Christian and that sang the old hymns. And I'm not talking about the old hymns. I'm talking about the old hymns. Um, the hymns, literally, that would have been written by Samuel Rutherford and those in the 1600s, 1700s. And this, these sank deeply into her heart. And she just, she said, even when she was a child, you know, even before she could read, the thing that kept her busy in church was flipping through the hymn book, pulling it off and flipping through it and looking at the different shapes and how the notes go up and down on the scale. And she was just drawn into this and this engaged her. But so she just had this early connection with hymns. And she memorized, as the kids would do back in those days, she memorized the Westminster Confession or the Catechism. And she won prizes for that. She won a hymn book as a prize, and she would go climb up in a tree and just read the hymn book as a kid. At the age of 10, she is saved as they're having a series at church on the the story of Pilgrim's Progress. And that's what brings her to salvation. At the age of 17, her arthritis goes into remission for a while, but she still suffers from migraines and has a malformed lower spine. Her back is in bad shape, but she doesn't even know it because for most, the migraines hurt so bad, she doesn't know that her back is in bad shape. She, uh, she's growing up during the time of the Great Depression, so there's not much of a chance to go to university, and so she goes to a teaching school to be a teacher. However, after graduating from college, it's the Depression, so there aren't any jobs in Toronto, so she travels to the border of northern Minnesota and Ontario to work in a lumber camp as a teacher. So you can imagine as a single girl in the 1930s being in a lumber camp and teaching, uh, teaching elementary school, uh, she said these years were devastating. They were full of spiritual isolation. After two hard years there, she moved 400 miles north of Toronto, and she taught, taught in a gold mining community. Again, just frontier, really rough and rugged people, away from really a good, solid church. But this season taught her to rest and rely on God's sovereignty and trusting in him and his abilities. Uh, she, they were hard times, but she loved the outdoors, and she would she she managed to spend almost a year's salary. She saved up about $600 somehow, and she bought a little rundown cottage 
on the Severn River up in northern Canada, and that will become her little writer's retreat. That will be her place of refuge where she goes. You can only get to it. It's out on a little island. You've got to take a little boat to get out to it. And she gets it rebuilt, and that becomes her little writing center um, that she'll go back, back and forth to. Uh, she becomes a teacher in the area in Toronto eventually, and uh, she will struggle with pain throughout life, My, migraines with convulsive vomiting, then arthritis, back pain. Um, the stable job, however, in Toronto gives her the uh, ability to do more writing, which is where God will use her. In uh, the 1970s, she has some surgery. In the 1972, she writes this book. You can go to slide 20 now. She writes this ironically named book, Race Grows Best in Winter. And I find that interesting because I can tell she's been reading Rutherford because that's the quote from Rutherford. And she writes this book, and she says, I didn't write this. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he has two books. Early in his life, he wrote The Problem of Pain. He writes about how can pain exist in a world where God is God. He writes this as a theologian, as a philosopher, and he writes about pain from the outside, analyzing it. But then when Lewis marries late in life, and his wife dies from cancer, he writes a, a, a very traumatic book called A Grief Observed. And now he's not writing it as an outside observer. He's writing it as someone living through the loss of a, a dearly loved wife. And so Margaret says, I didn't write Grace Grows Best in Winter. I didn't write it in the idea of the problem of pain, but I wrote it more as a grief observed. I'm writing this as I'm processing my own struggles, my own challenges, my own disabilities, my own pains. And what I really love about this book I this book sadly is no longer in print but I've, I've got a copy off uh, that I bought off the internet and on the back cover I read this this testimonial that fr- to the forward and it says I was not long after I left the hospital in 1967 that I fell into a deep pit of depression I was just a young girl yet I was facing an overwhelming future a life of total and severe disability I was in need of answers A young friend who often came by my home for visits stopped by one day with a special book in my hand, this book. Together we read that book through the weeks of winter. I eagerly looked forward to each chapter, discovering sense and sovereignty and delighting in a new grasp of God's grace. Could I be the friend that stops by in your life this day? This book is the book that I read in that first winter of my disability. Grace grew then for me, and through grace you will grow too. And that's written by Johnny Erickson. So this book, through Margaret's life, becomes the book that brings Johnny Erickson or helps to bring Johnny Erickson out of facing lifelong paralysis because she is broke her neck in a diving accident. And thankfully, Johnny is still with us today in her ministry. We, know, we all are very familiar with what her ministry has done for the disabled community. But Grace Grows Best in Winter doesn't get written if Margaret doesn't have the life she has. And if that book's not written, then it's not there for Johnny to read when she's in the hospital, paralyzed, and needing some kind of purpose and hope in her, her future. So that was in the 70s. Um, where are we? What's our next slide? I forget where we are. Okay. Um, we'll just leave that up. I'll refer to that in a minute. But Margaret will go on to live again. In spite of her disability, she lives to be almost 92 years old. And she dies in 2008, just, just uh, not that many years ago. Her final years are years of dementia, so her mind goes at the end. But at the age of 70, she's in, in hospital again for another fi- a spinal uh, surgery. And while she's recovering from that surgery, she writes this hymn. I've never sung this hymn. I don't even know if there's a tune for this hymn. But 
she writes, O resurrection body set free from pain and death, sins cursed forever vanquished by Christ's victorious death. And she goes on, O resurrection body, young, radiant, vibrant, free, with powers unthought, undreamed of, how rich your joys will be. Through endless years in a new world, a new created world, to marvel, design, create, and explore, and resurrection wonder to worship, serve, and adore. Lead on in sovereign mercy through all life, earth's troubled ways till resurrection bodies bring resurrection praise. So, again, these are just four quick vignettes, we might say, of four people. David Brainerd, William Cooper, Charlotte Elliott, and then Margaret Clarkson, who had winter seasons or even, indeed, winter lives. And if you know someone, or if that's your life, if that's your story, this is not uncommon to the Christian life. And I don't want us to ever think that, yes, if God gives joy, rejoice evermore, and and all those promises and all those commands that were given in the New Testament, if God gives those, if God grants those, if we have those lives, if God's if that's the personality even that's God, that God has given you and he's wired you and encourages you through the spirit sanctification of your natural personality and the grace that works in there, that's, that's wonderful. Because if we were all winter Christians, I don't think we would all survive. We need some summer Christians in our lives for those who are more on the winter side of life. But again, the body of Christ is a mixture uh, of, of summer and winter, of arms, hands, feet, and legs. And... We need to be sensitive to each other. And if you're a summer Christian, don't go to a winter Christian and say, get with the program, deal with it. Realize that there are some traumatic things that are just not easy to just snap out of it. If you're a winter kind of Christian, don't be envious of those who Christianity just seems to come easily to certain people. And recognize that there are God's ways. As, as Cooper says, the, God, the ways of God are mysterious. So I just want to close now in prayer, but I just encourage us, uh, as again, to, to draw strength and encouragement. And to remember that all four of these people are with the Lord. They have, their resurrection bodies aren't, aren't ready yet. They're still on layaway. Um, but it, it won't be long when we are reunited with them, and we will all have our resurrection bodies. And, and I trust that this morning will have been encouragement to you as we look forward to to next week and another person uh, that we consider. I believe Corey will be teaching that, but let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your faithfulness to these people through the years, recognizing that your path for each one of us is different and uncertain, and that although we, we can't predict our lives, and our lives rarely turn out the way we want them to be. We are not the best storytellers. You are. And in the end, the story will be the best story ever even though right now in chapter two or three or wherever we are in our lives, it doesn't make sense. The plot's still confusing. But I ask that you would lead us to trust in you, to put our faith in you as Charlotte did, to say, I don't know my my feelings. I can't trust my feelings, but this is what I know to be true. I will put my faith in what I know to be true and not in what I feel. And I ask that we would encourage each other and we would be gracious with each other as we live in a wintry sort of world, in a wintry sort of age, that you would give the light that would surprise us, perhaps as we sing, that you would remind us, as Rutherford will say later, that he looks forward to eternity, the fair, sweet morning awakening. And we look forward to a day 
as we're told in Revelation 21, that there is no night there in the New Jerusalem. And that's our hope and that's our certainty. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.